Section 9 of Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Palmer. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Arranged by Leonard Huxley. Second part of Chapter 4. Settling in. Monday, January 16. We slept badly till the morning and, therefore, late. After breakfast we went up the hills. There was a keen southeast breeze, but the sun shone and my spirits revived. There was very much less snow everywhere than I had ever seen. The ski run was completely cut through in two places, the gap and observation hill almost bare. A great bare slope on the side of arrival heights, and on top of crater heights an immense bare tableland. How delighted we should have been to see it like this in the old days! The pond was thawed, and the confervae green and fresh water. The hole which we had dug in the mound in the pond was still there, as Mears discovered by falling into it up to his waist and getting very wet. On the south side we could see the pressure ridges beyond Pram Point, as of old Horseshoe Bay, calm and unpressed, the sea ice pressed on Pram Point, and along the gap ice foot, and a new ridge running around Sea Armitage about two miles off. We saw Ferrar's old thermometer tubes standing out of the snow slope as though they'd been placed yesterday. Vince's cross must have been placed yesterday. The paint was so fresh and the inscription so legible. The flagstaff was down, the stays having carried away, but in five minutes it could be put up again. We loaded some asbestos sheeting from the old magnetic hut on our sledges for Simpson, and by standing a quarter mile off Hut Point, got a clear run to Glacier Tongue. I had hoped to get across the wide crack by going west, but found that it ran a great distance and had to get on the glacier at the place at which we had left it. We got to camp about tea time. I found our larder in the grotto completed and stored with mutton and penguins. The temperature inside has never been above 27 degrees, so that it ought to be a fine place for our winter store. Simpson has almost completed the differential magnetic cave next door. The hut stove was burning well in the interior of the building, already warm and homelike. A day or two, and we shall be occupying it. I took Ponting out to see some interesting thaw effects on the ice cliffs east of the camp. I noted that the ice layers were pressing out over thin dirt bands as though the latter made the cleavage lines over which the strata slid. It has occurred to me that although the sea ice may freeze in our bays early in March, it will be a difficult thing to get ponies across it owing to the cliff edges at the side. We must therefore be prepared to be cut off for a longer time than I had anticipated. I heard that all the people who journeyed towards Sea Roids yesterday reached their destination in safety. Campbell, Levick, and Priestley had just departed when I returned. Tuesday, January 17. We took up our abode in the hut today and are simply overwhelmed with its comfort. After breakfast this morning I found Bowers making cubicles as I had arranged but I soon saw these would not fit in, so instructed him to build a bulkhead of cases, which shuts off the officer's space from the men's. I am quite sure to the satisfaction of both. The space between my bulkhead and the men's I allotted to five. Bowers, Oates, Atkinson, Mears, and Cherry Garrard. These five are all special friends and have already made their dormitory very habitable. Simpson and Wright are near the instruments in their corner. Next come Day and Nelson in a space which includes the latter's lab near the big window. Next to this is a space for three, Debenham, Taylor, and Gran. They also have already made their space part dormitory and part workshop. 
It is fine to see the way everyone sets to work to put things straight. In a day or two, the hut will become the most comfortable of the houses. And in a week or so, the whole station, instruments, routine, men, and animals, will be in working order. It is really wonderful to realize the amount of work which has been got through of late. It will be a fortnight tomorrow since we arrived in McMurdo Sound. And here we are absolutely settled down and ready to start on our depot journey. Directly the ponies have had a proper chance to recover from the effects of the voyage. I had no idea we should be so expeditious. It snowed hard all last night. There were about three or four inches of soft snow over the camp this morning, and Simpson tells me some six inches out by the ship. The camp looks very white. During the day it has been blowing very hard from the south, with a great deal of drift. Here in this camp, as usual, we do not feel it much, but we see the anemometer racing on the hill and the snow clouds sweeping past the ship. The flow is breaking between the point and the ship, though curiously it remains fast on a direct route to the ship. Now the open water runs parallel to our ship road and only a few hundred yards south of it. Yesterday the whaler was rowed in close to the camp, and if the ship had steam up, she could steam around to within a hundred yards of us. The big wedge of ice to which the ship is holding on the outskirts of the bay can have very little grip to keep it in and must inevitably go out very soon. I hope this may result in the ship finding a more sheltered and secure position close to us. A big iceberg sailed past the ship this afternoon. Atkinson declares it was the end of the Cape Barn Glacier. I hope they will know in the ship, as it would be interesting to witness the birth of a glacier in this region. It is clearing tonight, but still blowing hard. The ponies don't like the wind, but they are all standing the cold wonderfully, and all their sores are healed up. Wednesday, January 18. The ship had a poor time last night. Steam was ordered, but the flow began breaking up fast at 1 a.m., and the rest of the night was passed in struggling with ice anchors. Steam was reported ready just as the ship broke adrift. In the morning, she secured to the ice edge on the same line as before, but a few hundred yards nearer. After getting things going at the hut, I walked over and suggested that Pennell should come around the corner close in shore. The ice anchors were tripped and we steamed slowly in, making fast to the flow within 200 yards of the ice foot and 400 yards of the hut. For the present, the position is extraordinarily comfortable. With a southerly blow, she would simply bind to the ice, receiving great shelter from the end of the cape. With a northerly blow, she might turn rather close to the shore, where the soundings run to three fathoms, but behind such a stretch of ice, she could scarcely get a sea or swell without warning. It looks a wonderfully comfortable little nook, but of course, one can be certain of nothing in this place. One knows from experience how deceptive the appearance of security may be. Pennell is truly excellent in his present position. He's invariably cheerful, unceasingly watchful, and continuously ready for emergencies. I have come to possess implicit confidence in him. The temperature fell to four degrees last night with a keen south-southeast breeze. It was very unpleasant outside after breakfast. Later in the forenoon, the wind dropped and the sun shone forth. This afternoon it fell almost calm, but the sky clouded over again, and now there is a gentle warm southerly breeze with light falling snow and an overcast sky. Rather significant of a blizzard if we had had not such a lot of wind lately. The position of the ship makes the casual transport that still proceeds very easy, but the ice is rather thin at the edge. In the hut, all is marching towards the utmost comfort. Bowers has completed a storeroom on the south side, an excellent place to keep our traveling provisions. Every day he conceives or carries out some plan to benefit the camp. 
Simpson and Wright are worthy of all admiration. They have been unceasingly active in getting things to the fore, and I think we will be ready for routine work much earlier than was anticipated. But, indeed, it is hard to specialize praise where everyone is working so indefatigably for the cause. Each man in his way is a treasure. Clissold, the cook, has started splendidly, has served seal, penguin, and skua now, and I can honestly say that I have never met these articles of food in such a pleasing guise. This point is of the greatest practical importance as it means the certainty of good health for any number of years. Hooper was landed today much to his joy. He got to work at once and will be a splendid help, freeing the scientific people of all dirty work. Anton and Dimitri are both most anxious to help on all occasions. They are excellent boys. Thursday, January 19. The hut is becoming the most comfortable dwelling place imaginable. We have made unto ourselves a truly seductive home, within the walls of which peace, quiet, and comfort reign supreme. Such a noble dwelling transcends the word hut, and we pause to give it a more fitting title only from lack of the appropriate suggestion. What shall we call it? The word hut is misleading. Our residence is really a house of considerable size, in every respect the finest that has ever been erected in the polar regions. Fifty feet long, by twenty-five feet wide, and nine feet to the eaves. If you can picture our house nestling below this small hill on a long stretch of black sand, with many tons of provisions, cases, ranged in neat blocks in front of it, and the sea lapping the ice foot below, you'll have some idea of our immediate vicinity. As for our wider surroundings, it would be difficult to describe their beauty in sufficiently glowing terms. Cape Evans is one of the many spurs of Erebus and the one that stands closest under the mountains, so that always towering above us we have the grand snowy peak with its smoking summit. North and south of us are deep bays beyond which great glaciers come rippling over the lower slopes to thrust high blue-walled snouts into the sea. The sea is blue before us, dotted with shining bergs of ice flows, while far over the sound, yet so bold and magnificent as to appear near, stand the beautiful western mountains, with their numerous lofty peaks, their deep glacial valley, and clear-cut scarps, a vision of mountain scenery that can have few rivals. Ponting is the most delighted of men. He declares this is the most beautiful spot he has ever seen, and spends all day and most of the night in what he calls, quote, gathering it in, quote, with camera and cinematograph. The wind has been boisterous all day, to advantage after the last snowfall, as it has been drifting the loose snow along and hardening the surfaces. The horses don't like it, naturally, but it wouldn't do to pamper them so soon before our journey. I think the hardening process must be good for animals, though not for men. Nature replies to it in the former by growing a thick coat with wonderful promptitude. It seems to me that the shaggy coats of our ponies are already improving. The dogs seem to feel the cold little so far, but they are not so exposed. A milder situation might be found for the ponies if we could only picket them off the snow. Bowers has completed his southern storeroom and brought the wing across the porch on the windward side, connecting the roofing with that of the porch. The improvement is enormous and will make the greatest difference to those who dwell near the door. The carpenter has been setting up standards and roof beams for the stables, which will be completed in a few days. Internal affairs have been straightening out as rapidly as before, and every hour seems to add some new touch for the better. This morning I overhauled all the first sleeping bags and found them in splendid order. On the whole, the skins are excellent. 
Since that, I have been trying to work out sledge details, but my head doesn't seem half as clear on the subject as it ought to be. I have fixed the 25th as the date for our departure. Evans is to get all the sledges and gear ready whilst Bowers superintends the filling of provision bags. Griffith Taylor and his companions have been seeking advice as to their western trip. Wilson, dear chap, has been doing his best to coach them. Ponting has fitted up his own dark room, doing the carpentering work with extraordinary speed and to everyone's admiration. Tonight he made a window in the dark room in an hour or so. Mears has become enamored of the gramophone. We find we have a splendid selection of records. The pianola is being brought in sections, but I'm not at all sure it will be worth the trouble. Oates goes steadily on with the ponies. He is perfectly excellent and untiring in his devotion to the animals. Day and Nelson, having given much thought to the proper fitting up of their corner, have now begun work. There seems to be little doubt that these ingenious people will make the most of their allotted space. I have done quite a lot of thinking over the autumn journeys, and a lot remains to be done, mainly on account of the prospect of being cut off from our winter quarters. For this reason, we must have a great deal of food for animals and men. Friday, January 20. Our house has assumed great proportions. Bower's annex is finished, roof and all thoroughly snow-tight, an excellent place for spare clothing, furs, and ready-use stores, and its extension affording complete protection to the entrance porch of the hut. The stables are nearly finished, a thoroughly stout, well-roofed lean-to on the north side. Nelson has a small extension on the east side, and Simpson a prearranged projection on the southeast corner, so that on all sides the main building has thrown out its limbs. Simpson has almost completed his ice cavern, light tight lining, niches, floor and all. Wright and Ford have almost completed the absolute hut, a patchwork building for which the framework only was brought. But it will be very well adapted for our needs. Grant has been putting record on the ski runners. Record is a mixture of vegetable tar, paraffin, soft soap and linseed oil with some patent addition which prevents freezing. This according to Gran. P.O. Evans and Crean have been preparing sledges. Evans shows himself wonderfully capable, and I haven't a doubt as to the working of the sledges he has fitted up. We have been serving out some sledging gear and wintering boots. We are delighted with everything. First, the felt boots and felt slippers made by Jaeger, and then summer wind clothes and fur mitts. Nothing could be better than these articles. Finally, tonight we have overhauled and served out two pairs of Finesco fur boots, to each traveler. They are excellent in quality. At first I thought they seemed small, but stiffness due to cold and dryness misled me. A little stretching and all was well. They are very good indeed. I have an idea to use uh, putties to secure our wind trousers to the finesco, but indeed the whole time we are thinking of devices to make our traveling work easier. We have now tried most of our stores and so far we have not found a single article that is not perfectly excellent in quality and preservation. We are well repaid for all the trouble which has taken in selecting the food list and the firms from which the various articles could best be obtained, and we are showering blessings on Mr. Wyatt's head for so strictly safeguarding our interests in these particulars. Our clothing is as good as good. In fact, first and last, running through the whole extent of our outfit, I can say with some pride that there is not a single arrangement which I would have altered. An emperor penguin was found on the Cape, well advanced in molt, a good specimen skin. Atkinson found cysts formed by a tapeworm in the intestines. 
it seems clear that this parasite is not transferred from another host and that its history is unlike that of any other known tapeworm. In fact, Atkinson scores a discovery in parasitology of no little importance. The wind has turned to the north tonight and is blowing quite fresh. I don't much like the position of the ship as the ice is breaking away all the time. The sky is quite clear and I don't think the wind often lasts long under such conditions. The pianola has been erected by Rennick. He is a good fellow and one feels for him much at such a time. It must be rather dreadful for him to be returning when he remembers that he was once practically one of the shore party. The pianola has been his special care and it shows well that he should give so much pains in putting it right for us. Day has been explaining the manner in which he hopes to be able to cope with the motor sledge difficulty. He is hopeful of getting things right, but I fear it won't do to place more reliance on the machines. Everything looks hopeful for the depot journey if only we can get our stores and ponies past the glacier tongue. We had some real rissoles today, so extraordinarily well cooked that it was impossible to distinguish them from the best beef rissoles. I told two of the party they were beef, and they made no comment till I enlightened them after that they had eaten two each. It is the first time I have tasted seal without being aware of its particular flavor. But even its own flavor is acceptable in our cook's hands. He really is excellent. Saturday, January 21. My anxiety for the ship was not unfounded. Fearing a little trouble, I went out of the hut in the middle of the night and saw at once that she was having a bad time. The ice was breaking with a northerly swell and the wind increasing, with the ship on dead lee shore. Luckily, the ice anchors had been put well into the flow, and some still held. Pennell was getting up in steam and his men struggling to replace the anchors. We got out the men and gave some help. At six, steam was up, and I was right glad to see the ship back out to windward, leaving us to recover anchors and hawsers. She stood away to the west, and almost immediately after a large berg drove in, and grounded in the place she had occupied. We spent the day measuring our provisions and fixing up clothing arrangements for our journey. A good deal of progress has been made. In the afternoon, the ship returned to the northern ice edge. The wind was still strong, about north 30 to the west, and loose ice all along the edge. Our people went out with the ice anchors, and I saw the ship pass west again. Then, as I went out on the flow, came the report that she was ashore. I ran out to the Cape with Evans and saw that the report was only too true. She looked to be firmly fixed and in a very uncomfortable position. It looked as though she had been trying to get round the Cape, and therefore I argued she must have been going at a good pace as the drift was making rapidly to the south. Later, Pennell told me he had been trying to look behind the berg and had been going astern some time before he struck. My heart sank when I looked at her, and I sent Evans off in the whaler to sound recovered the ice anchors again, set the people to work, and walked disconsolately back to the Cape to watch. Visions of the ship failing to return to New Zealand and of 60 people waiting here arose in my mind with sickening pertinacity, and the only consolation I could draw from such imaginations was the determination that the southern work should go on as before. Meanwhile, the least ill possible seemed to be an extensive lightening of the ship with boats as the tide was evidently high when she struck, a terribly depressing prospect. Some three or four of us watched it gloomily from the shore whilst all was a bustle on board, the men shifting cargo aft. Pennell tells me they shifted ten tons in a very short time. The first ray of hope came when by careful watching one could see that the ship was turning very slowly. Then one saw the men running from side to side 
and knew that an attempt was being made to roll her off. The rolling produced a more rapid turning movement at first, and then she seemed to hang again, but only for a short time. The engines had been going astern all the time, and presently a slight movement became apparent. But we only knew she was getting clear when we heard cheers on board and more cheers from the whaler. Then she gathered stern way and was clear. The relief was enormous. The wind dropped as she came off, and she is now securely moored off the northern ice edge, where I hope the greater number of her people are finding rest. For here and now, I must record the splendid manner in which these men are working. I find it difficult to express my admiration for the manner in which the ship is handled and worked under these very trying circumstances. From Pennell down, there is not an officer or man who has not done his job nobly during the past weeks and it will be a glorious thing to remember the unselfish, loyal help they are giving us. Pennell has been over to tell me about it tonight. I think I like him more every day. Campbell and his party returned late this afternoon. I have not heard details. Mears and Oates went to the Glacier Tongue and satisfied themselves that the ice is good. It only has to remain another three days, and it would be poor luck if it failed in that time. Sunday, January 22nd. A quiet day with little to record. The ship lies peacefully in the bay. A brisk northerly breeze in the forenoon died to light airs in the evening. It is warm enough. The temperature in the hut was 63 degrees this evening. We have had a long, busy day at clothing, everyone sewing away diligently. The eastern party ponies were put on board the ship this morning. Monday, January 23. Placid conditions last for a very short time in these regions. I got up at 5 this morning to find the weather calm and beautiful, but to my astonishment, an opening lane of water between the land and the ice in the bay. The latter was going out in a solid mass. The ship discovered it easily, got up her ice anchors, and sent a boat ashore, and put out to sea to dredge. We went on with our preparations, but soon Mears brought word that the ice in the South Bay was going in equally rapid fashion. This proved an exaggeration, but an immense piece of flow had separated from the land. Mears and I walked till we came to the first ice. Luckily, we found that it extends for some two miles along the rock of our cape, and we discovered a possible way to lead ponies down to it. It was plain that only the ponies could go by it, no loads. Since that, everything has been rushed, and a wonderful day's work has been resulted. We have got all the forage and food sledges and equipment off to the ship. The dogs will follow in an hour, I hope, with pony harness, etc. That is everything to do with our depot party, except the ponies. As at present arranged, they are to cross the Cape and try to get over to the southern road tomorrow morning. One breathes a prayer that the road holds for the few remaining hours. It goes in one place between a berg and open water and a large pool of the glacier face. It may be weak in that part, and at any moment the narrow isthmus may break away. We are doing it on a very narrow margin. If all is well, I go to the ship tomorrow morning, after the ponies have started, and then to Glacier Tongue. End of chapter 4